So we're going to continue the Lord's Prayer series, and uh, then Christy's going to be ministering uh, toward the end of the service, um, just praying over you, praying for you, and just sharing a few bits and pieces. So she's on her way now. She's, I, I left the Cheltenham campus, and she took over, and uh, I came down here, and then uh, she will uh, be here, God willing, <laughs> before I finish preaching. Amen. So it's the Lord's Prayer, part five. This is the second last message. The title of the message is The Bread That Doesn't Run Out. And uh, we're going to look at that statement in the Lord's Prayer where Jesus taught us to pray, give us today our daily bread. I'm going to ask you if you would turn to uh, the Gospel of John, either in your Bibles or your smart devices, the Gospel of John chapter 6. And uh, we're not going to read the Lord's Prayer today, going to look at I just kind of flesh out something that Jesus is talking about here in regard to bread. Just while you're finding that, last week in the message, uh, your will be done, we looked at a couple of the most often asked questions of the Christian faith. Number one, what is God's will for my life? And the second question, if there's a loving God, why is there so much evil, pain and suffering in the world? And so if you missed that message, get a hold of it. It's online. You can download it as an audio podcast. And it's a really key message to get you equipped with answering those questions uh, because they're often asked uh, by other people. So John chapter 6, the context here, incidentally, is the feeding of the 5,000, which, which is really an understatement. Because it says feeding of 5,000 men plus women and children. And so it's really a bigger miracle. I mean, it's a big miracle feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Uh, but it's an even bigger miracle feeding 20,000 people with the same amount. And so that's the context here. They've been in a wilderness place and Jesus has fed the crowd with fish and bread. And even with that miracle still buzzing in their minds. It's fascinating. If you look at verse 30, these people that have experienced the miracle, some of them come to Jesus and they ask him this question, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Now, if I was there, I would have said, what I have already done in feeding 20,000 people with a small amount of food is probably enough. But Jesus is more patient than I, and we are very grateful. In verse 31, these same people say, Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. But Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am Yahweh, the bread of life. I am he who will be to you. I am he who will be to you the sustenance that you need, not just in this life, but in the one to come. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now go down to verse 41. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, said Jesus. Now go down to verse 48, and Jesus repeats these same truths. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna. In the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread 
that comes down from heaven which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. And so in this teaching, he's pointing forward to his crucifixion, which incidentally in the Gospel of John is not long uh, away. The Gospel of John uh, largely focuses on the last few weeks of Jesus' life. At the beginning, a couple of things right at the beginning, and it really flips to the end. So this teaching and this experience here that they're having together is possibly not long before Jesus was crucified. And so he's talking about giving his flesh, his body, crucified, dying, buried, resurrected um, to give everlasting life for those who would partake of him. For the rest of the chapter of John 6, the Jews argue about what Jesus is talking about. Jesus then goes on and he says that they have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Um, And the people misunderstand the metaphorical language that Jesus is using. In fact, this teaching uh, ricocheted and really was um, held against the church uh, in the first century as many churches and Christians were viewed as this some sort of cannibalistic cult. Things were, aren't you glad church has changed? And things were not any better when persecution broke out and sometimes the only places where Christians could find to gather were graveyards, cemeteries, um, uh, catacombs. Can you imagine uh, someone, you're not a Christian and someone uh, tells you, oh, by the way, I'm a Christian. Uh, We've got a service coming up in the cemetery on the weekend. Would you come and join us? You know, it's like, oh, they've heard about these people. They eat flesh, they drink blood, and they meet in cemeteries. This is not good for church growth. So it's no wonder at the end of Matthew, sorry, John chapter 6, that, that we see a whole stack of Jesus' disciples, probably hundreds of them, maybe even thousands of them. If they were alive today, they'd be getting out their smart device, they'd be logging on to Twitter and finding Jesus' page and clicking unfollow. Because that's what John records there. He says, many of Jesus' disciples unfollowed him. They stopped following him at that point. So much so that Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, are you going to unfollow me as well? And Peter comes up with this answer to Jesus' question that really is some sort of backhanded compliment. Jesus, uh, where would we go? You've got the words of eternal life. In other words, if there was another option, Jesus, we would probably take it, but there isn't another option, so I guess you're stuck with us and the other way around. So a couple of questions to answer in this message. The second one I'm going to look look at is, what did Jesus mean by daily bread? But first of all, what does bread symbolize in Scripture? And particularly, what did bread mean in the context of the people that Jesus and the crowd are talking about, that is the Israelites who were redeemed from slavery in Egypt and brought into the desert, and there in the desert they experienced two types of bread that symbolized amazing truth to those people and to us as well. The first type of bread that it talks about uh, in Scripture for the people in the wilderness was the showbread. This is sometimes referred to as hallowed bread or literally bread of the presence. And this bread was baked on the day before every Sabbath day. So once a week they would bake this beautiful, uh, thick, 
crusty bread. I can smell it already. They would, bring, they would bake 12 loaves of this and they would bring it into the tabernacle, the tent that was a portable worship center that they would pitch in various parts wherever they were camped in the desert. They would erect this tent and that was where the presence of God would dwell and then they moved on. They would pack the tent up and hopefully God wasn't still in there and uh, they would move it to another location. And it was very simple, a very simple structure. And on the inside, before the presence of God, they put a table and these 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel every day before the Sabbath, freshly baked and put on the table. What a beautiful sign. What a magnificent symbol and a message of all the things that God could have chosen to communicate symbolically how he felt his people, about his people, he picked a table and food. Isn't that special? That's why one of our key initiatives for this year is the Meet the Family um, initiative that you would have heard of of earlier in the service. Uh, We have a number of lunches and dinners coming up that you can book into, whether you've been at Bayside a short period of time or a long period of time, if your desire is to get more connected and get to know some more people, then book in for one of those because there's nothing like getting to know people around a table over food. It's a magnificent message that that God said to the people um, right from the very beginning, I want to eat with you. This is the sort of relationship I want to have with you. I am not some austere, um, distant figure sitting on a throne, drifting through space somewhere. I am not an old man with long hair and a long grey beard uh, or a moustache, which is not coming back. (laughs) Talk to my wife. (laughs) He's not someone out there with a chalkboard and and every time you're doing something wrong, he's making another mark on the chalkboard. (laughs) One, two, three, four, five. What he's saying here is, I want a relationship with you just like the kind of relationship where you gather around a table and eat together. Jesus modeled the same relationship. The Word made flesh dwelling among us. And you read through the Gospels, Jesus spent the vast majority of his time gathering around tables with food, with people, and communicating truth and getting to know them and letting them get to know him. He ate with his disciples and he taught them. He met with tax collectors and sinners, the up and out and the down and out, and he often got into trouble for it. Why are you eating with such people? The religious would have nothing to do with them, and yet Jesus had everything to do with them. And we're to be like Jesus. Every major event after the crucifixion happened at a meal. Jesus proved who he really was, that he had risen from the dead by eating food in front of them so that they they knew he wasn't some sort of disembodied spirit. He wasn't some sort of ghost. He said, I'm real. I'm physically risen from the dead. And to prove it, he ate food. Jesus restored Peter and the disciples over a meal on the beach one morning, this crackling fire and fresh fish, and they enjoyed food together and he restored them. Jesus gave the great commission at a meal. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit around food, and the first church did life together over food, and that's what we do too. Then right at the end of the New Testament, we find this gem that Jesus says to his church, 
Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. That's the relationship God calls us into. And if you have any other relationship in your mind when it comes to God, and I know that we all got stuff that we have to deal with in life and we've heard teaching over the years about what God's like and all of that kind of stuff. Let me tell you, the number one picture of God and the relationship that he wants to have with us that we find in scripture is sitting down over a meal and eating together. Enjoy that level of relationship with your saviour. The second type of bread mentioned around this time in scripture is the daily bread or the manna. We find this in Numbers 11 and verses 4 to 9. The uh, context here is that the people of Israel are in the desert. They've been set free from four centuries of slavery. And in chapter 4 of Numbers 11, the Israelites started wailing. Now that doesn't mean that they were in the desert catching whales. They were starting to wail. That is, they were blubbering. Second wave. They were wailing and they said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions and garlic that now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. The closest thing to manna in this day and age would be nougat. They had nougat for breakfast, nougat for lunch, nougat for dinner every day for 40 years. And they were getting a little tired of it. They'd written a cookbook, 101 ways to cook manna. They had manna burgers, manna waffles, manna souffle, manna cake, manna casserole. You name it, they ate it. It was manna. And they were now looking at rose, through rose-coloured glasses at the way things used to be. They'd forgotten about the slavery. They'd forgotten about the slave drivers. They'd forgotten about the beatings and the whippings. They'd forgotten about the lack of food at times. They'd forgotten about the times when things got worse, when Moses showed up and things got even more severe for them in slavery so that they were groaning in pain in slavery, they'd forgotten all of that. They were this nostalgic view of the past that we so easily fall into as well, looking at the past through rose-colored glasses, and they said, oh, we've just remembered the free fish and the fruit and the vegetables. I had a guy come to me quite a number of years ago when we were, uh, before we pioneered uh, the Frankston campus, when we just had the Cheltenham campus, and we'd moved out of the funeral parlor and we were meeting at Mentone Girls Secondary College, and this lovely man uh, who's no longer with us, but he came, he came to me and he said, um, uh, he said, I really miss the days of the funeral parlour. And I said, why is that? And he said, well, it was small, and everybody knew each other, and it was kind of intimate, and, and he said, and now it's grown and it's bigger, and, and it's not like it used to be. And I said, you know, I really understand what you're saying. But I said, you know, God's doing some really good things here and we don't want to be selfish and keep it all to ourselves. And so, you know, it's good to share it with other people. But I get what you're saying. Um, but you know, he was looking through rose-colored glasses because it wasn't all good meeting at a funeral parlor. Some people didn't want to come to church in a funeral parlor. I wonder why. You know, the chapel seated 40 people. And by the time we moved out, we were fitting 80 people in there. 
So it was very tight. It was very squashy. You know, we thought we were having revival because people were basically falling out of windows to try and fit in. The children's ministry, and our first children's minister is still in our Cheltenham campus. She was at uh, church last night. And, and, you know, she remembers the days where she was our only children's ministry leader and we had about three or four kids in the whole church and they used to meet every Sunday morning in the viewing room. There was a coffin in there. It was an empty coffin, but it was a coffin. And the children were incredibly well behaved. We're actually thinking of getting one upstairs so that we can really care for your children. (laughs) Sorry, where's my child? Well, he was a bit naughty this morning. No, we're not going to do that. It's okay. (laughs) Some of you are looking very worried. And then the Bible goes on to describe manna in Numbers chapter 11. In verse 7 it says, The manna was like coriander seed. And looked like resin. The people went around gathering it and then ground it in a hand mill. Or they crushed it in a mortar, so a pestle and mortar. They cooked it in a pot or made it into loaves. And it tasted something like something made with olive oil. When the dew settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. Now, this shatters uh, the idea that many people have that the people of Israel used to just go outside the camp and pick this off the ground like it was little slices of bread and bring it in and eat it. It wasn't. It was, it was a, a, a natural substance that the people gathered, but then they had to work on it. They had to process it. They either had to grind it up in a hand mill or boil it up, mash it, make it into bread or cakes or waffles or burgers or whatever the case might be. There's still a particular type of tree uh, in that part of the world, in the Middle East, and particularly in the northern part of Iraq. This tree um, is pierced by insects. And when the insect pierces the tree, uh, large amounts of sap, treacle-like sap, drop out of the tree and falls on the leaves under the trees. The local people then go and gather these leaves and they scrape this sticky resin-like substance off and they take it and they process it in a very similar way to the way that the Bible describes and they make it together and push it and and mold it into little sweet treats just like nougat. They call this this treat man, M-A-N-N, without the A on, man al-samar, which literally means bread from heaven or bread from the sky. It falls from the trees to the ground. And it's likely that the people of Israel were eating and making a very similar thing. This processing of the manna is very important when you understand what manna symbolizes. In Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, Moses says to the people of Israel, He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you or your ancestors had known. And then listen to this to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And this is where this is really important, and we can bring these principles into the modern day. What we've got here is showbread and daily bread, manna. We've got weekly bread, the showbread, made once a week, and the manna which was provided every day except for the Sabbath day. What I'm giving to you right now, what I've given to you for the last few weeks, 
what anyone gives you from our teaching team weekly or guest ministry every week here at Bayside Church is like the showbread. It's baked and the priests would gather around the table through the following week and they would eat the bread together. What I'm giving to you today is like showbread. Uh, And I hope you enjoy this message, not just today, but for the rest of the week as well. You can take notes, you write down, not everything, but maybe just one or two things that really stand out to you from the message which you sense the Holy Spirit is applying to you. You write those things down, you take it with you through the week, you continue to read that. You might go online, watch the message again, listen to it again. Use the discussion questions with a few other people. Get together. What you're doing is you're breaking bread. You're breaking the showbread. You're breaking the weekly bread, which every church should give to its people. Good, solid teaching every week. So you've got something to live on. Because we feed our bodies, but our spirits need to be fed as well. And then we've got this daily bread, this manna that was given every day to the people. That's when you spend time in God's Word every day, meditating on the truth of His Word, going through your day, thinking about Scripture, meditating on one or two lines that the Spirit of God is saying to you. It might not be a different Scripture every day. For me personally, uh, God will say something to me from Scripture. It'll highlight and I'll write it down and I'll take that with me through every week, sometimes for several weeks. And read on that, meditate on it, and apply it to my life. And use that to feed me and to encourage me. That's my daily bread. That's the manner I live on. But even more importantly than that, Jesus said that he was the bread that came down from heaven. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by the very word of God. And Jesus Christ is the word made flesh. And so we feed on Jesus and our relationship with Him, and we grow on that. But it's something that has to be processed. If you get to meet someone for the first time, you'll normally exchange names and maybe talk about occupations, especially if you're a man. They're our two most important questions. What's your name and what do you do? And then you learn about someone's family and and from there. And if there's a bit of chemistry there, you say, how really would like to catch up again? Let's do it. And so you make a plan and you catch up with them again. And the next time you you meet with them, you get to know them a little bit more. You speak to them. You ask them questions. They ask you questions. You, you, You discuss maybe topics of interest and you go a little deeper. What are you doing? You're processing. Just like the the manna each day is being ground down and made into something that's edible. A, A friendship grows and processes over time. It takes time. It takes a very long time to get a really good friend. It takes difficult times. It takes times where you're going through something that's really hard and you share that with the person and you discover that they can be trusted with sensitive information, that they don't go off and gossip around people, which kills a friendship, but rather there's someone that's a safe place. And when that happens, you go a little bit deeper still with that person. And it's that processing of the manner in friendship that is to be the processing of our relationship with Jesus Christ. I know him better today than I did when I first gave my life to him almost 40 years ago. In fact, it'll be 40 years ago this December when I first gave my life to Jesus Christ. And I know him better now. Why? Because we've been hanging out together for a long time now. And my relationship with him is better. It's deeper. It's more intimate. It's, it's more trusting than it was back in those early days. We need to process relationship. In John chapter 6, 49 to 51, 
Jesus said, your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread pointing to himself. Here is the bread that comes down from heaven or comes from the sky, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And so that's what bread means in Scripture. And secondly and finally, and very quickly, what did Jesus mean by daily bread? Because he makes this statement in the Lord's Prayer, give us today our daily bread. It's almost like repeating something unnecessarily. Today and daily. I mean, if it's today, it's daily. If it's daily, then it's today. And people have actually discussed this and argued about what Jesus actually meant over the centuries because the Greek word translated daily is epiousios and is only found in this one verse in the Bible. Now, when it's a word that's only ever used once, there's no other verses where you can compare the way epiousios is used and there's no Greek literature outside of the Bible where epiousios is used either. It's like Jesus made up a word. What are we going to say? Give us today our epiousios bread. And we have no frame of reference to actually work out what that word means. Trinity, our youngest, she made up a word uh, when she was two years old. I'll, I'll never forget this. It was such a funny event for us as a family. Uh, we were swimming together, Christy and myself, and Trinity uh, with her little floaties on, and Gigi in Paris, and we're having a lovely time. And this is back in, in, in Christy's Italian phase. Now, understanding something about my, my dear wife, she goes through language phases. So if we're doing some work in Indonesia, she'll learn some Indonesian, which is wonderful, because the locals love it. You know, Alan Fee have, have helped Christy a little bit uh, with some with some language uh, with with Indonesian, and it's great. I mean, I do my best, but I'm not as good as Christy. My brain is not wired uh, that way. You know, I, I'm English in tongues. That's it <laughs> for me. Uh, but she's really good. So she learns uh, Indonesian. If we're in Malaysia, she's learning some Malaysian. If we go to Fiji, which we've done once for a holiday, then she learns some Fijian. And the locals love it because she's able to converse in a basic way with them. And so this is back in Christie's Italian phase. And so our two-year-old Trinity at the time, who's now almost nine, um, she was bilingual at that point. She knew some English words and some Italian words. I got to the point where I actually had to learn some Italian in order to be able to communicate with my two-year-old. Because she'd be, you know, like staggering around like little two-year-olds do and touching stuff. And I'd say, Trinity, don't touch it. And she'd completely ignore me. Trinity, don't touch that. Nothing. I realized that she actually didn't understand what English for don't touch means. I had to learn non toccare, which means in Italian, don't touch it. So I'd say, non toccare, Trinity, and she'd stop touching it. So we're in the pool one afternoon and we're swimming around and, and Trinity's starting to yell this word that sounds like Italian. She goes, Occanini! Occanini! And, and we're, we don't know what she's saying. Not even Christy knew what Occanini meant. Occanini! Occanini! And, and we are laughing more and more and more till tears are streaming down our face. And, and she's getting more and more frustrated because she wants whatever Occanini is and we don't know what it is. So several days later, Christy's chatting with her, um, with her Italian teacher 
and she's asking her, and they finally realized what Trinity was asking for was oculoni. And that means goggles. She's in the pool and she wants her oculoni. She wants her goggles. And we're okanini, okanini. And we're just laughing at her and she's getting ticked. And it's like Jesus here. He's using this word and nobody knows what it means. There's only one insight that, um, that we get um, for what this could possibly mean. And that's from an old Syriac translation of the scriptures where um, this line, give us today our daily bread, is translated, if we put it from Syriac into English, it's Amen, bread today, give us. Now, this word Amen that we often use at the end of the prayer is used at the beginning here and comes from the Syriac adjective Ameno, and it means lasting, never-ending, and perpetual. And so it starts to give us a bit of insight into what Jesus was communicating here. He's saying perpetual, never-ending, lasting bread today give us. Or a better way of translating this into English would be give us today the bread that doesn't run out. What a magnificent truth. Jesus is actually instructing us here to pray about one of the most basic and crippling human fears, and that is the fear of running out or not having enough. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I imagine a number of us, me included, have had questions like this over the years or thoughts in our minds. Will we have enough? What if I lose my job? What if I'm unable to work? How will we survive? What if we can't pay the mortgage, the rent? What if the kids get sick? What if? What if? What if? In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray for release from these fears. Give us today the bread that doesn't run out. That is enough for today, enough for tomorrow, and enough to help meet the needs of other people. It shatters the selfish statement that I've heard people say from time to time, I just want enough to get by. What we pray is, Lord, give me enough so it never runs out, so I have enough for us, but also enough for others. Before I hand over to Christy, I just want to read to you an extract from Mother Teresa's book where she writes about one of her experiences uh, that she had in Calcutta that beautifully illustrates this truth. She says, I will never forget the night an old gentleman came to our house and said that there was a family with eight children and they had not eaten and could we do something for them? So I took some rice and went there. The mother took the rice from my hands and then she divided it into two and went out. I could see the faces of the children shining with hunger. When she came back, I asked her where she had gone. She gave me a very simple answer. They are hungry also. And they were the family next door, and she knew that they were hungry too. I was not surprised that she gave, but I was surprised that she knew. I had not the courage to ask her how long her family hadn't eaten, but I am sure it must have been a long time, and yet she knew. In her suffering, in her terrible bodily suffering, she knew that next door 
they were hungry also. This woman with eight children may not have known the Lord's Prayer, but there was only our rice, not my rice. Even when her children were hungry, the prayer for our bread includes the neighbors. It is our Father and our bread. It's the bread that never runs out. Amen. Now, I'm just aware that we're uh, running out of time uh, here, and I do want Christy to minister. So I think we'll just cut out the next couple of things from, from the run sheet, if you don't mind. I'm going to invite Christy uh, just to come and share. Uh, sweetheart, we do have communion. If you want to lead the people in that way, you're most welcome to do so. Why don't you put your hands together for Christy B? Thank you. We've just had a beautiful experience in communion at the Cheltenham campus, and I just know that the same God is going to be with us. If I can just ask the um, stewards to hand out the emblems, that would be wonderful. It's lovely to be here, and I, I love this community. I just, you are just so precious, so precious. Um, I, I, it's a long time since I've felt the kind of love that you guys have exhibited. Um, it's been quite extraordinary, actually, because um, you know me the least, and yet you've ex exhibited an incredible amount of love in the, the challenges that I've been through in the last year. And um, that blesses me deeply, deeply. I just wanted to share with you, we're about to partake in something extraordinary and yet something ordinary. Just hold the emblems in your hand. I've been meditating for quite some time on the story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus with the disciples. Come along with me and just imagine for a moment that sense that you get when you talk with someone and they get you. There's that, there's that, they get me, they get me. And, and I stayed on that picture of the disciples, you know, having that connection but not knowing quite what it was for a long time. And in the last couple of years as I've been meditating on that scripture, something else has moved me. And that was something incredibly ordinary. Because the Bible says that their hearts were stirred and in fact their hearts burned. And we long for that burning in our hearts, don't we? That feeling of connection, that feeling of belonging, that feeling of being understood, being heard, being listened to, and being useful. We long for that as human beings, right? But then moving step forward from there, they still didn't know who Jesus was. And moving a step forward from there, it says that it came to the end of the day and they realized, hey, this guy can't go any further. It's coming to the end of the day. Let's invite him in. And it wasn't until they actually did the most ordinary thing that the most extraordinary moment of communion took place because when they broke bread together, bread is very normal. Bread is extremely ordinary. It is a staple. It is nothing, you know, elaborate. It is something that is expected. It is ordinary. But it was in that moment, in the moment of the ordinary, that Christ was revealed. I want to really encourage you that instead of looking for God in the extraordinary, look for Him in the ordinary. 
Look for him in the smile. Look for him in the pat on the back. Look for him in the tears. Look for him outside in nature. Look for him in everything, in all things. You know, when I speak to Jimmy and Emma today, their smile today is going to be different from their smile next week because our relationship with God is dynamic and moving and continual. And it's not the same Jimmy and the same Emma. It's a renewed, transformed, more knowing because they are choosing to commune with God in the ordinary. You know, I, I, I find it so hard and I'm longing to understand. This is not a statement from judgment. This is a statement from how can I serve you to understand this? You know, I've been driving around in the smart car. And, you know, if you make a mistake in that smart car, you get blared so bad. It says, churches change, check it out, make a smart choice. I mean, I had this guy the other day blaring. And he was waving to me in a way that I've never seen before. But I chose to, you know, think that he was some sort of unusual blessing. <laughs> and... And I'm driving around in the smart car, and to some, it is a fragrance of life. And to some, it is a fragrance of death. But the other day, I was coming from the city, and I had my little friend, who's a fully veiled nun, and we took the roof off, and we're coming down the freeway, and her veil is flying out one side, and my very colorful Jacob scarf is flying outside the other side of the scarf, other side of the, the, the roof, actually. It was coming out of the roof. I had a photograph, but I can't show it to you right now. It's on Rob's Facebook. Don't go there for a moment. Stay with me. <laughs> and we're driving along and joy was breaking out on the freeway in rush hour. People were smiling, laughing, nodding. And at one point we were at a standstill and we are laughing so much. She says, I can't believe it, sister. She keeps on calling me sister. I can't believe it. People are getting joy. People, I'm sitting laughing at us. She goes, people are getting joy. She goes, they're joy. They're filled with the joy of the Lord, she's saying. And I'm going, yes, sister, you're right. You're so right. And lo and behold, this woman pulls up right beside us. She winds down the window. She doesn't mind that she presses the button. And she says, you will not believe it. She says, this is the best noise I have heard all day. This is pure therapy. This is her words. This is pure therapy. Your joy has made my day. Sisters, she said, sisters, can you pray for me? Is this on the freeway? I said, sure, absolutely. No problems. And then Friday night, I said, Friday night, I'm losing time. Thursday night, I said to Rob, let's just meet and debrief on a couple of things before we go home so that the kids are, we're not telling the kids, go to another room or whatever. And he was like, oh, I need to get home. And I'm like, yes, but we need to talk. And I don't want to talk in front of the kids, so let's do that, da-da-da. So he, he, he followed the Spirit of God and the ordinary thing and met with me. And we're sitting, just before, I thought the smart car really needs washed because it's really embarrassing driving around in a dirty car and people are saying, somebody actually put in the back, holiness, cleanliness, question mark. I'm like going, oh, Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy. So 
So I took it into the little place beside Southland, beside where they do the washing at the movies. And I drove in and I wound down the window and I said to the guy, I said, do you have enough room for this car to be parked? And he says, oh yeah, take a double space if you need it. And we started to laugh. And I said, how much is it going to cost me to do, to do this car? He said, well, the last car, look, see, $65. I said, but that was a real car. This is not even a real car. It's not even a half car. It's like two seats and, a, and not even a roof. And he said, well, how much do you want to pay? And I said, well, let me ask you a question. You guys are all laughing, every one of you, all 10 of you. Now, that all 10 of these Indian car washers had now come around me laughing, 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 asking me, was I a sister, was I a nun, was I a priestess, who was I? And, and they said, uh, how much? And I said, you guys are all laughing. So I've brought you joy. So I should be charging you. And they said, go on, we'll do it for free. So it gets better. It gets better than that. So I go up to meet with Rob. We meet. And as we're sitting talking, this is the ordinariness of life. We're sitting talking. A guy walks up, a young guy, 24, 21. And he says, oh, Pastor Rob, I've been wanting to get back to church. And I just don't know how to get back in it. And seeing you today is like a miracle. We're eating. And it's a miracle, all right? And... Anyway, I went, oh, my goodness, the car. I better go. Excuse me. So I left them to have a private chat. So I go down to get the car. And I see this guy walking towards me like this. I go, what on earth is he doing? And so he comes and he meets me. And he goes, sister, sister, we've been looking for a way to give back into the community. I mean, this is, this is, this is sharing our faith, and I'm not saying to you in any way, I'm, not, I'm just saying, just be you. Just be you. And as you're you in the normal, ordinary, every way of life. So then on Friday, I'm at Albert Road Clinic visiting somebody who needs some care, and I pull up, and all sorts of strange people are there, including me. And the woman next door to me goes, Are you a vicar? And I said, no, she said, well, are you a priest? And I said, no. He said, what are you? I said, I don't know. It depends on the day. <laughs> and I'm thinking, standing outside a psychiatric clinic, that's probably not the right thing to say. But she understood. <laughs> and she said, would you say, a can, can you, she said, but can you say a blessing? And I said, of course I can say a blessing. In fact, my husband, she said, but can you say a non-religious blessing? And I'm like, I can. Of course I can. Of course I can. Rob did a non-religious blessing at a thing the other day. I carry the presence of God. So I just said, I said, am I allowed to use God? She said, yeah, yeah, that's fine if it works for you. I said, yeah, it does. Works well for me. <laughs> works very well for me. <laughs> very well. Very, very well. And I said, God, I see your image and your likeness in this woman. Bless her today and let her see your image and your likeness in everyone that she comes in contact with. Amen. And tears are rolling down her face. And she's going, thank you, thank you. I said, no, 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 you, you, no, no, no. Thank you for giving me the permission to do that. And now, as we take the bread, this ordinary symbol, 
that talks about our humanity. See, Jesus didn't die to save us from our humanity. He died to save us from our inhumanity. When we are not our best selves, we are inhumane towards ourselves and towards others. But when we are human and humane, we are as Jesus died for. And he said, this is my body that is broken for you so that you can live out of that place of healing and bring healing to other people. So if you'd like to take the bread and let's eat it together. We're eating it communally. And we all know what it's like to be betrayed. We know how we betray our own best self sometimes when we are who we don't want to be. We betray each other in making choices that don't bring us closer to God, but rather take us further away. But in the night before he was betrayed, Jesus took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is my blood for the remission of sins. Drink ye all of it. And as we drink the ordinariness of this juice, we partake in the extraordinary gift of forgiveness of our sins so that we can go out and forgive others who sin against us. Amen. Let's drink together. one more thing I'd like to do. A very dear friend of ours and also of my parents, beautiful, beautiful pastor who used to work with Operation Mobilization. Does anybody know about that? The two ships, the Logos and the Doulos? Yeah. Okay. You may know this fellow actually, Pastor Raymond Coe and Susanna Coe. Pastor Raymond Coe did the most incredible work in uh, the outskirts of Malaysia working with Christians and also with Muslim extremists helping people because he knew Jesus loved them and on the 13th of February he was abducted by um, militants and there has been no sign of him since last night in Kuala Lumpur they held a vigil for him and people all around the world are praying for his safe return Pastor Raymond was a gutsy, is a gutsy type of individual. And I know that he would have loved not his life onto the death. But we are believing that according to God's will, that we are asking that he would be returned safely to us and that some knowledge of his whereabouts would be revealed to the authorities and to his family. One of our congregation was speaking to his wife last night and you can imagine they are in extreme pain However, she rejoices in the fact that churches all over the world are being called together to pray. She's rejoicing in this. She's rejoicing in the knowledge that other people are feeling their pain. And so for one minute, just for one minute, I want you, 
from a place of receiving now to actually to give and to hold that family and to hold Pastor Raymond and that entire organization just to hold that before God asking him for mercy on them can we do that just complete silence for one moment for one minute thanks Lord, have mercy and hear our prayers for Pastor Raymond and Susanna. Lord, we thank you for such a privilege to join with a worldwide group of believers in praying for our persecuted brother and many like him. Lord, we pray that even in this time, Lord, that you would be glorified and lifted up. Father, we pray for comfort and for consolation for all those involved. Father, we pray for Susanna that your peace that passes all understanding would be her portion. Lord, we thank you for the consolation that she has in knowing that we are standing with her. And Lord, as you lead, may those that are in this congregation pray for Raymond and for Susanna so that they can continually felt he feel held at this time. We thank you and we bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.